0: This morning, uh, if you came in this morning, hopefully you grabbed uh, some notes for Ecclesiastes uh, They are on the back table there. Uh, if you don't have that, it will help you as you go through uh, the time this morning. And I will wander through the waves to get uh, the PowerPoint up for that. But uh, we have been going through this book for those that have not been here. We've been Going through Ecclesiastes, uh, we've discussed the fact that this is a seemingly rather pessimistic book. You, you read it uh, just at a cursory glance, but you have to realize that Solomon is writing, first of all, a tract for the world. The name for God that is given throughout uh, the Scripture here is the, the, the just simply the name God the generic name, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, not Jehovah, which would have been the name that God had given to his people, the nation of Israel, that this is designed to be a tract for individuals in the world to realize that there is more than just life under the sun. That's how most people view this life, that they're born, they die, and they just kind of day in and day out are living under the sun, and that's all there is to life. What Solomon did in his starting of this uh, book, he decided that he was going to test this out for himself, uh, what it would be like to live life under the sun. He's a man who has the money, the ability, capability to be able to test these things out, and so he, being an investigator of certain things, decides he's going to live life by working and having folly and pleasure and all of these things to see if life could be lived under the sun without a thought of anything beyond the sun. And so what we've titled the series is Life with God Under the Sun because ultimately in the end of the book, he hints at it throughout that you have to live life as if God truly does exist and that one day before him we will have to stand. And if you live life like that and understand that everything that we've been given in this life, that we're stewards of it, that uh, we're merely stewards of it, that we enjoy what God gives to us on a daily basis, our meals, our, our food, and our work even that we enjoy and are thankful for. But last week, we had gone through the section that uh, is commonly known as the poem on time. It's the one that even the world uh, knows and has heard uh, in different, even popular song. They've heard uh, this poem on time, and we just uh, reminded ourselves—or remind ourselves this week that What we understand from that is that God is in control of times and seasons. You you have the extremes of war and peace and love and hate and rending and sewing together and and tearing down and constructing. You have all of these things that, like a weaver's uh, shuttle going back and forth, uh, you have all of these activities that are going on. It's just a part of life, but you understand that in the extremes that are talked about there and everything that's in between, that it's not accidental that God is in charge. In fact, for individuals, they go through, and we had this uh, statement in verse 11 of chapter 3. It said this about God, that he has made everything beautiful in his time. And that idea of beautiful is that it fits together. It's working out. He's making everything, as we talked about a couple weeks ago in Romans 8, that all things work together for good to them that love God, and you're not sure exactly what the good is at times, but God's weaving these things together in our times and season to accomplish something, and so there is a beauty to it, but there's a harmony that goes along with all of this. But beyond that, God gives, uh, in verse 11, it says this, he has also set the world in their heart. And I said you need to really underline that word, and it's the word elsewhere translated in the Old Testament as eternity, that mankind understands there's something beyond time. It's in their being, it's in their understanding that there is something beyond time, uh, this framework that we are held by, and you kind of go, well, who is that and what is that? Well, it's God who is in eternity. He dwells, he's not bounded by time like we are, and uh, he is God, and he controls uh, things, and and." and mankind is bounded by time. God's outside of that. We look forward to that great eternal, as it's described, the great eternal day, that someday we will be there with God, enjoying not the restraints of time like we do now, uh, but humanity's got that feeling that there's something else. There's something far beyond what we see here in the daily in and out of activity. And so the challenge of the passage was simply this, is that You are supposed to enjoy, verse 13, every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of his labor. It is the gift of God. Day in and day out as you have life and the food and the drink that you have and the work that you have and the life and the energy you have, you just simply realize this is a gift from God that I have another day, another time. And even though it may not go exactly the way that I want it to, and it's not exactly perfect, it's still a gift from God, and I can get frustrated with all the frustrations as we're gonna talk about them here in a second, but I just out to enjoy day in and day out what God has given to me and the, the great hope that I have. So all of that to be said, and it kind of goes back to Solomon with his pessimism and his attitude of pessimism You find it in verse number 16. All of a sudden he goes from that and he says this, moreover, I saw under the sun the place of judgment. That wickedness was there. And the place of righteousness, that iniquity was there. I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked for there is a time, there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. But immediately Solomon begins to say, as he comes out of this whole thing in time, he starts looking around, and he goes to the seats of authority, and what he finds is this, is that injustice is found in the seat of justice. Now, we live in a culture today that this term, terminology is just loaded with all sorts of things. But I also kind of have to smile because these people think that this is the first time that injustice has happened in the history of mankind, that somehow they're the first people to be woke and offended and uh, all of this. No, this has been going on, Solomon, 1,000 years before Christ, at least 3,000 years, and we know long before that, that there is such thing as injustice Where there ought to be fairness and where things ought to be dealt with in an even-keeled and right fashion that everybody's in the same scale. We talk about these unbalanced scales, but as justice is described, you have the fair balance that is there. It's been the expectation of humanity to have the opportunity to plead their case and to be heard. And to be accepted on evidence, not on the, well, prejudice of certain individuals or prejudice against uh, uh, other things. But what Solomon recognized in his day, day and he talks about the seat of justice uh, in the uh, land of Israel. You can go there and even the city of Dan, they have this there. They have an actual throne, a place for a throne outside the city gate. And if you had any court cases or law cases, you would come to the city gate. And what this would allow for is either if you had a king or a mayor or multiple individuals ruling, they would meet there outside the gate and they would decide court cases right there in the gate. It would allow for them to call in witnesses because everybody's got to come in and out of the gate and they would just suddenly grab a few people and say, you're going to be witness in this case today. You know, that would be a change of plans for you, but uh, you're going to be a witness in this case, and so that would be the case that would go on for these individuals, and they would have what they were heard. Sort of like the the story, uh, you, you find this in the New Testament of this uh, uh, widow who is rather insistent and persistent with the judge, and she's always going to the gate, and and she's there day in and day out, and she won't go away. And But that was where you were supposed to get justice, was outside the city gates, and Solomon, in his observations, even though he was the king, he had other officials that were in charge of certain things, and he began to realize that even in the place where you would expect justice to be carried out, there's unrighteousness that goes on. People get cheated. People don't get what they really do deserve. They don't get that, and other people get things that they don't deserve. And you see this time and time again, and so this whole idea that injustice is a new thing, no, it, it is there in the human experience. You go, why is that? Because people are sinful. Every person's sinful, including leaders and uh, judges and the like, and they can make uh, problems as far as the decision. And so I have this is injustice is a regular part of human experience. And he sees this, so he goes through, and he sees in the, the city gates at times. He's got this type of thing. But on the other side of this, and I'm just going to put this in here, we we ought to understand that coming out of the poem on time, is there a time where injustice will be righted? I mean, God's got a time for everything. Everything. So you see injustice there and it might upset you and you go, well, I want to take care of this right now or you may not have the power to take care of it, but you're going, someone's got to take care of this. Well, God's going to take care of it sooner or later. I mean, for us is uh, looking at that passage uh, that is listed there, Revelation twenty eleven through 15. You know, what passage is that? Well, that is the great throne room of God. And I'm going to turn there. You don't have to, but uh, I'll read to you something that ought to give us at least some comfort that injustice will be taken care of. Romans, uh, Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, makes this statement, I saw a great white throne in him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was no place found for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their... what? According to their works... See, if their name's not found in the Lamb's book of life, which means uh, your works and your injustices and your failures are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, what you have is people there that have not uh, been individuals who have placed themselves under the Lamb and his sacrifice. What you're going to find is this, is that these individuals are ones who are now going to be judged on their activities in life. And God's got the books, and you have a God whose eyes of uh, eyes, as it's described in the Old Testament, run to and fro throughout the whole of the earth, beholding the evil and the good. And that God sees these things, and so he's got these books that are there, and so if a person wants to simply argue the fact that they might be good enough or they've done enough to accomplish getting into God's heaven, they're going to have a listing of their books there with every injustice and every unrighteousness that they ever committed, and it's going to be there. And you say, so God is in the balancing of life, even though in this life you're like, those people didn't seem to get justice it wasn't fair that they got away with this and this and this. Well, as believers and having the whole of the story, you know, is the the, the old thing with Paul Harvey, the rest of the story, Uh, when we go outside of this book, you have a full accounting here. And it's not to say that by the time we get to the end of Ecclesiastes, he's still going to say, God is going to judge you. You're going to have to stand before your God. But right now as he's experimenting In life, and he's just going through life as a person who's walking under the sun with nothing else going on. He's just simply going, There's injustice everywhere. And that injustice would make us feel hopeless. But for a believer, understand that there's a balance, you know, coming out of this poem of time, there's a balance. There may be injustice for a time, but God will ultimately weave it back so that justice does take place. And so for. Solomon he recognizes that there is injustice found in the seat of justice, and all of a sudden in verses eighteen through twenty-one, going back in Ecclesiastes if you went to Revelation but Ecclesiastes verse eighteen, Solomon then continues this: "I said in my heart concerning the estate or the state of the sons of men." that God might manifest them, that they might see that they themselves are beasts or animals. For that which befalleth the sons of men befalleth beasts. Even uh, Even one thing befalleth them. As the one dieth, so dieth the other. Yea, they have all one breath, so that a man hath no preeminence above a beast, for all is vanity. All go into one place. All are of the dust, and all are turned to dust again. Who knoweth the spirit of man that goeth upward, and the spirit of the beast that goeth downward to the earth? Wherefore I perceive that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his works, for that is his portion. For who shall bring him to see what shall be after him? You know, what is this giving us? Well, this statement about death. He, anybody that is thinking about life is thinking about Death. I mean, they think about it. And for many, there are individuals that are humbled by this, but what Solomon is saying is what mankind needs to recognize is that really we're no better than, and it has it this way, that man should be humbled by death. They are just like animals. You go, you know, I'm smarter than animals. You know, Some of you have animals. You're thinking, I hope I'm smarter than they are. Sometimes they think that they are smarter than you, but um, they, uh, you have this whole thing, and, and, and mankind can really be impressed with themselves, their energy, and their activities, and all the projects that they do, and they look at animals, and they just go, oh, the dumb animal over there, and whatever else. But the fact is, is mankind's not any different in animals, because they're eventually going to die just like animals do. Both animals, creation, and mankind will all die. So mankind can be really impressed with all of their activity, but eventually they're going to die and cease to, in this life to exist. And so for mankind, there ought to a, be a humbling, but also as you go through, you find that mankind under the sun does not see a future this is the frustration. Here they live life, but they die just like animals. They have this happen to them. They, They die just like everything else does. But from a human perspective, this is it. I mean, that's the frightening thing to humanity. They don't know what else there is. The story that read in the the process of this, and there's a man that is a contemporary writer by the name of Julian Barnes. He's an English uh, novelist, and uh, he's written many prize-winning books, but one of them was uh, about uh, his wife dying. Uh, He wrote a book called Levels of Life, a poignant memoir about uh, the death of his beloved wife, This followed an earlier uh, writing in which he admitted that he was afraid to die, frightened by it. This confession was something of an embarrassment because as an agnostic, which an agnostic simply means a person who doesn't believe that God is knowable, can't figure him out. Uh, Because as an agnostic, Barnes honestly did not think that death was anything to be scared of. You know, if God can't be known, well, then we don't have to worry about death, and okay, God may exist, may not, I don't know. But uh, he then, after writing this, if there's no good reason to believe in God, he reasoned, then there's no such thing as life after death, and there is, to use uh, the title of his memoir, nothing to be frightened of. I mean, that was his biography that he wrote, nothing to be frightened of. Yet, in the memoir, Barnes frankly admitted that he was afraid to die, desperately afraid. New York Times uh, reviewed the book correctly and diagnosed the author's condition as that of thanatophobia, which uh, thanatos is the the Greek word for death, or fear of death. Barnes admitted that he thinks about death every day and that sometimes in the night he is roared awake and pitched from sleep into darkness, panic, vicious awareness that this is a rented world that he lives in. Awake and utterly alone, he finds himself beating his pillow with a fist and wailing, oh no, oh no, oh no. Julian's dreams are even darker. Sometimes he's buried alive, other times he's chased and surrounded and outnumbered. He finds himself held hostage, wrongly condemned to a firing squad, informed that there is even less time than he thought, the usual stuff as he calls it. And then one commenter makes this comment, and perhaps this is the usual stuff because death is the sum of all our fears of being alone, abandoned, and condemned. There are a lot of people in this life that are humbled by the fact, even though they've accomplished great things, and you read uh, the stories of some of the pop artists of our day, and there is a desperateness because they recognize death is coming. It doesn't matter how many of, uh, records that they have sold and how many platinum uh, things that they have. Uh, it doesn't matter. They're going to die. And that's humbling to them because here they are, the great person that's receiving accolades of the world, and they're just like an animal. They're going to die too. And it terrifies them. And for people who are living under the sun, they don't see a future. For them, the end is just darkness and panic and worry. But on the other hand, Solomon lets in this little picture that's there. It's the third of what we call the the kind of seize the day passages uh, in Ecclesiastes, the Carpe Diem ones, where you're told, here's what you do. Enjoy life as you now have it. Uh, This statement uh, in verse 22, I perceive that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his portion. That word portion is, and we would use commonly in our terminology, that's their inheritance. This is what we receive as humanity. God gives us life to live. He gives us the things that we do so that we ought to enjoy them. For who shall bring him to see what shall be uh, after him? And the the fact is, is uh, we have people that live life, and do they know what's going to happen next? The answer is we don't. There's a lot of people who spend time worrying about what's going to happen next, tomorrow, the next day, and everything else, and they spend life like that. And the advice here is, no, live life what you have now that God has given to you as your inheritance because you may not have any more inheritance tomorrow, God may call you uh, to then die and go someplace else. But I will say this, verse 21 is kind of his desperate statement, who knoweth that the spirit of man that goeth upward and the spirit of the beast that goeth downward to earth, it's some would suggest the fact that Solomon's saying, there is no life after death. well, animals, they they obviously die, their spirit disappears, but, uh, you know, I don't know if mankind, if their spirit actually goes anywhere. From a human standpoint, that's what uh, you would uh, have mankind say, I don't know where we go. He does, and you may want to put this as a side reference in your your Bible there or something like that, that in Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 7, he actually, at the end of the book, comes to the point uh, where he declares this, and it's after talking about old age and everything that goes along with this, and it says this, then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the spirit shall return unto God that gave it. Okay? So Solomon's not here suggesting that he doesn't believe in the life hereafter. But he's doing this as a person who's living life from a this world perspective, under the sun. This is all that's there. I don't think there's anything after this. That's what people in this life think about. But Solomon ultimately gets to the point where he says and declares this, that our spirit does return to God. So he does believe in a life hereafter, even though at this point you're saying, well, what's Solomon saying? Well, he's being that pessimistic person, experimenting under life or living life under the sun, but then there is one thing that we come back to is that oppression is here again, or injustice, as we might say. In verses one through three, Solomon says this. So he returned and considered all the oppression that's done under the sun. It's kind of like he goes from the seat of justice, he starts talking about death, and he's going, okay, I'm coming back to this again, where I come to where there should be things that are fair and judgment calls that are made that are right. Verse 1, so I return and consider all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of such as were oppressed, and that had no comforter. and the sight of their oppressors there was power, but they had no comforter. Wherefore I praise the dead which are already dead more than the living which are yet alive. Yea, better is he than both they which hath not yet been, talking about a person who's not been born yet, who hath not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. He just comes to notes. There's oppression in this world. No matter how much we do to try and solve this and we do have responsibilities to help uh, those that are in need, The Scripture talks very clearly and especially in the Old Testament about situations like this that you you help the widow and you help the orphan and that you help the traveler, the stranger that's in the land. We would call in our modern vernacular the immigrants, okay? Uh, Those types. Uh, That we have a responsibility. That you find that in Amos, or excuse me, Zechariah. You find that in Amos. There's just this idea that the judges are not to oppress those that are poor and needy. I mean, you find this throughout the Old Testament. But there is a problem. There's oppression everywhere. And as you go through, for most people, their only defense is tears. They have no power. They have no ability. They have no influence. All they can offer is tears. And you realize there's a lot of people like that in the world right now. I I can think of countries right now that I would be in tears if I was living there. Uh, There are people who are living in family situations that all they feel like they can offer is tears because of even that, the, the violence, the abuse that goes on. Tears are sometimes the only response that are available to oppressed people And Solomon acknowledges it. There seems to be no recourse for them. There seems to be no hope for them. And as such, there is the other side of this. When people feel like this, you have this side uh, that, well, we'll get it up there. Sometimes the oppressed, sometimes, sometimes the oppressed, even sometimes, okay. This is what happens when at 10 o'clock you're finishing the last note. Sometimes the oppressed envy those who do not exist. Realize that the siren call for people who are in situations like this is to end life. And you say, well, I, I, I don't understand that. I want, you know, we don't have time just because of where we're at, but read Job 3 and read Jeremiah chapter 20. Both of those passages are individuals who are servants of God who get to the point on some occasions where they say this, I wish I was never even born. In this environment, Solomon's just saying this is a kind of calculated observer and whatever, but you have people there, they're just saying, you know what, I envy people who didn't even have a, a day of life because they haven't seen the sorrow, the difficulty that I've seen. And for individuals like this, the answer is once again the same. And it kind of goes together. There is injustice in this world, but understand that in God's time, justice will be served. And for you, even though you think this is the most miserable life I can possibly be living, God's given you another day. And you don't know what for. But it could be to bring joy to somebody. I, I, I With reading in World War II and a lot of the things that happened in, in Europe in that time, I, I've read a lot about the Holocaust. You want know, to talk about people that are oppressed? But... You find in some of those stories with Christians uh, and individuals that were trapped in those places uh, in misery like this, and you could just have the pity party, woe is me, I wish I was never here, I wish I was never born. Uh, They found great joy in daily going, God's given me another day of life. What am I supposed to do with this? You go, well, how can you have that kind of attitude in the midst of, uh, of jail and prison and a concentration camp? It's because these people have this perspective that there's something beyond just this life, that there's a God out there who will bring justice to individuals who are oppressing. You may not have the power to do it, but your responsibility is just simply this, to live the day that God has given to you that you do it with what joy you can because it may very well be that God has given you the opportunity another day to affect somebody who is just merely looking at life as one who's just staying here under the sun. They haven't thought about life beyond. And so Solomon kind of, this is one of the more depressing sections of this book, but even in, in this, you begin to realize, if I live life under the sun, I'm not gonna be happy. I'm without hope. But if I live, okay, there is someone beyond, and I have to stand before him and live that way and live every day as a gift from him. God's gonna say, you know what? Your time's up, no more life for you here on this earth. But every day that I have, I enjoy it because it's my inheritance. That's what God's given to me. And so Solomon, even in this kind of pessimistic section, He's given you reason to live, even though life might be unjust and oppressive and not fair. God's given you the opportunity to show forth that there is a God, He really does exist, and that we are responsible to Him. And so let's live life that way. You're not going to solve every oppression, but you can with the day you have, live it as one who has received a gift of stewardship from God. Lord, we thank you that you are our God, that this life isn't it. We praise you for that. But in this life, as we live it, there may be certain things that do not go right, situations that seem hopeless, unfair, oppressive, that we realize that each day is a gift to us as stewards, that we live it in such a way as people that know one day we will stand before you. That will help us not to focus so much on ourselves and our problems. But oftentimes will lift our head up and help us to see others that are in greater need than ourselves those that are in desperate need of a Savior, those that are in need of just help of any kind that they can't provide themselves, but we can. And so, Lord, may we uh, live life as inheritors daily of your good gifts, and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.